Hi, I'm Megan Francis. And I'm Dave Kroc. And this is the LifeWork Podcast. In this show, we'll explore what it really takes to build a business while designing a life that matters. Today on LifeWork, a very interesting man joins us. Damon Brown is an author and journalist who focuses on the intersection of technology and human connection. What better way for a man with that background to make the transition to entrepreneur than with an app that uses technology to help people cuddle? And this was no small splash. Rather, his app Cuddler became the number one app in the Apple App Store. It landed him on the cover of the Wall Street Journal and kickstarted the platonic connection industry. His TED Talks push the value of being fully present in our lives, and his books, including Our Virtual Shadow, do the same. He believes in warm, fuzzy technology and computers bringing us closer together, if we choose to let them. To discuss his journey today on LifeWork, Damon Brown. Damon, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. You've got such, a, such an interesting and diverse background. Um, but there's definitely a, fo- a focus to it. Um, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You're focused on the idea of sort of the intersection between technology, communication, the human side of connection and, you know, how technology impacts our lives and whatnot. Um, how would you describe yourself, what you're passionate about and what you do for people that would want to know? Sure. So my background is journalism. That's where I started. Mm -hmm. And that ended up expanding. And so essentially, my career is the transformation from being an observer to helping other people observe to being a creator. Mm. And so the idea of technology actually helping us connect with people more and the challenging ways that it's allowing us to connect with people less and pushing that argument that technology, if we use it correctly, can actually um, make bigger connections. As you mentioned, I'm an entrepreneur, but even though there's, you know, entrepreneurial uh, lineage in my family, that wasn't something I intended on doing. And it very much was a process of me being a journalist, getting really close to the subjects that I covered and then realizing that I wanted to get more involved. So that got me into authorship. Mm-hmm. Once I started writing books, that became great and addictive and awesome. And then I started uh, doing self-publishing and also helping other people self-publish. I had a couple of bestsellers with that, which was an incredible experience. But that really exposed me to the DIY, do-it-yourself um, aspect of it uh, back around 2010. Wow, that's great. And I realized, right? And I realized that that was kind of my entry point into entrepreneurship was publishing my own books and helping other people publish their own books. As I started to collect the information after being a decade, decade and a half, uh, uh, spending that time in the journalism world, then I realized that there were needs that I could actually help fulfill. And the funny thing is when you research certain things as an observer, as a, as a journalist, as a writer, you're kind of naturally fit to find out where the holes are. And that's what got me into entrepreneurship um, 100% when I ended up joining two other guys to create an app called Cuddler. And that was about two years ago. And it blew up really big, really fast. Mm-hmm. It was totally crazy. And ended up being a, a really interesting ending to the project too, which was about six months ago. That was August of 2015. And since then, I've been working with Inc. to do a column that discusses if you can actually be a wonderful family person, which I'm married and I have a kid. So if you can be a wonderful family person, have strong relationships, take care of your health while still you know, for lack of a better term, being a badass entrepreneur. Yeah. Oh, is that possible? Absolutely. Yeah. And so... The, the really brief version of it is that um, my first app called So Quotable, I created that while I was taking care of my newborn at home because I'm the primary, uh, um, primary caretaker. And so I was taking care of him while I was launching and learning how to program and also launching my first app. And then I ended up doing my first TED Talk a few months uh, shortly after he was born. And then about two or three months after his first birthday, that's when I ended up connecting with the folks for Cuddler and then end up running a startup 
you know, remotely while I was a stay-at-home dad. So it's been a really fun journey for me as far as not only transitioning from um, an observer and a writer to a creator and actually advising other people now as far as their creations, but also the transformation to, from, you know, a single guy to someone who's married with a kid um, running a startup which probably would have been a lot easier before I had <laughs> I had those responsibilities, <laughs> but that's not that's not exactly how it doesn't always work out. But life worked out right, and I'm sure other people can relate to that too. For sure, so that's that's the nutshell. Yeah. Well, wow, there's well, and, and there's so many reasons why you're the perfect guest for this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've you've touched on a lot of them, um, and I want to go back and unpack some things a little bit because there's so many questions I have for you. The uh, starting from the beginning, did you know? Did you know that you wanted? to focus in the areas that you focused on when you were, uh, let's say in high school and early years out of high school? I did. Yeah, I did. In fact, it was the, the joke was that I was born with a joystick in one hand and, and a pencil in the other hand. So for me, it was always understanding technology and it was always telling stories. Well, that's and the shift for me happened, um, Number one was when I got a library card, or I'm I'm assuming it was my folks' library card. And when I was in elementary school, I had gotten an older computer, one of the early Commodores. Uh And I I taught myself how to program. And so just the ability to take these abstract, uh, at the time, numbers, abstract numbers, and, uh, and being able to take these ideas that I had and translate them into, into an action on the computer was an amazing thing. So I knew I loved technology. And then when I was in high school, I actually was encouraged to get involved with the school newspaper. And at that period of time, I was very much into fiction because I loved, again, telling stories. And I love imaginative things. And getting involved with the school newspaper, all of a sudden I realized that there were some amazing stories out there that were true. And they were greater than anything that I could have made up. And that, that old adage that, you know, uh, truth is stranger than fiction, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like that's the reason why I became a journalist, where I was like, oh, no, I'm not going to make up anything. No, I'm going to find these stories, and I'm going to tell these stories. And, and it became almost like a sense of advocacy for people who were not able to tell their stories, whether they weren't articulate or they didn't have access. You know, they didn't have the platform, as we call it. You mm-hmm. know, so they didn't have a wide enough audience to tell their story. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being a theme throughout my career, and still so. Um, even as a creator at this point, the apps that I'm working on are helping people do things that people don't normally talk about or people don't usually have the access or the privilege to do. And hopefully that's been a theme with, with the stuff I've been creating. But yeah, to get back to your point, like that's, they're, they're, those two things are very much interweaved. And high school was kind of the big turning point where I went from fiction to nonfiction and got very much into, into understanding the reality of our, of our world today. Wow, that's fascinating. When you, when, so when you were in high school, is that when you were working on the, the now was it the Commodore 64 or the VIC-20? <laughs> The Vic 20. The Vic 20. <laughs> I was there right there with you, man. I, I probably don't have near what? the skills no. that you did. You, you just dated me too, which makes me feel bad. <laughs> okay, dated both of us. Exactly. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and then, so through college, journalism started to take off for you. Um, one of the things that, what brought you let's let's jump to cuddler because um there are a lot of people that that want to hear this story <laughs> yeah. um uh, that follow us that want to hear this story um so you, you had kind of prior to the and we'll get to what the app's about and, and how it blew up and in the conversations that it started in so many ways uh in a minute the the idea of the intersection between human connection and technology when did that um, and and I, I'm just kind of guessing that seems to be one of the core passions that you have um, from a journalistic, but both a, um, a journalistic and a development standpoint. When did yes. that when did that passion start to come to fruition for you? Um, they actually started individually. And to give you a brief background for when I got into college, I, I spent, you know, almost mathematically, like quantitatively, I spent half of the time with the art students, the creatives, you know, the, the people who were 
spouting Shakespeare and Proust and other things. And those were my people with the journalism side, with the creative writing side. And then the other half of the time, almost quite literally, was with the engineers and with the programmers and talking about processors and getting the latest video games, which I've written a couple books about video games. So mm-hmm. that was always a big thing of mine, you know, and, and doing that. And so for me, that's the intersection of sex and technology is quite natural just because sex is such an intimate thing. It's, a, it's often a physical thing. Um, it's always a mental thing. And it can be quite an emotional thing, too. It's considered something that's soft and, um, and uh, ethereal and, and hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's hard to describe. And then you have something like computer science or technology, apps, things like that, and they're very concrete. You put something in, something comes out, a very basic, you know, uh, programming uh, mm-hmm. tenant. But for me that kind of makes sense to connect the two. And I think that has to do with my, my, my personality. And so when I was in school, I was flip-flopping. Actually, I just was straight-up journalism. But in my mind, I was flip-flopping between journalism and computer science. And what I ended up doing was um, compu- uh, journalism with a minor in computing. And that ended up being focused on the programming and those things that I really want to do. I ended up learning about five or six programming languages when I was in an undergrad just because I wanted to and I was part of the curriculum. And for me, it was a difficult time, not on a personal level, but more um, at where we were in the world because I was in undergrad in 1994. Mm. And I was a little bit young too, so I was 17, Mm -hmm. went away to school. 1994, and the merger that we know today as journalism connecting with technology, mm-hmm. that wasn't around at the time. Most major newspapers, you know, they barely had a website. Mm. You know, uh, yeah. Yahoo was just the front page that was like a yellow pages mm-hmm. <laughs> that right. showed you everything that was on the internet. Right. Like the internet was so, <laughs> right? The internet was so small. You could get to the you end. Could ca- <laughs> you can categorize it. Yeah, you can categorize it. Like that's crazy if you think about it. Yeah. But that was you know, um, about 20 years ago. And so it was a very different type of pace then. Um, and so the idea of someone being a journalist and also caring about technology was really foreign. And it took a long time until I found my people for that. But also, took, too, it took a long time for, relatively long time, I guess, for, um, for every, everything to kind of catch up. But I would argue the same thing happened with sex and technology. And my first major book was a book called Porn and Pong, How Grand Theft Auto, Tomb Raider, and Other Sexy Games Changed Our Culture. And that, that working on that project was actually got me, what got me into books. Mm. Because I'd worked on a... Um, a short article for Playboy about this ad campaign that was banned from a lot of the major video game publications. And video game publications at the time were very much geared towards, um, arguably were geared towards teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't comfortable with the content of this particular game because it featured a, a lesbian couple. And so I wrote about that for Playboy. And me being a big historian or history buff, I started realizing that there was this interesting history and connection between sexuality and how things were interpreted in technology, in my case, video games. And I pitched it to all the major men's magazines. I won't name them, but (laughs) (laughs) I pitched all the major ones. Some of them, I had colleagues of mine working there and they're like, Damon, you're crazy. Like there's no connection between sex and, and, and video games or technology. You're going, this does, you're making mountains on molehills. Mm. And this is back in 2000, 2001. And so almost out of frustration, I was like, you know what? I'm, I keep on getting these rejections, but every day I'm finding more and more information. And I think there's a history here. Mm-hmm. So let me, maybe I need more room than a magazine article anyway. Let me turn this into a book. Maybe it's time for me to become an author. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. And so I spent the next five years finding the right publisher, working with an agent. And then the book came out in 2008. And by the time it came out, people were like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what we need to talk about because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm seeing this video game and it's depicting this. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing this virtual reality thing and it's this. Um, Pornography is doing this. And suddenly it was part of a discussion. So I think the big lesson that I learned is to always follow my gut 
when that sense tells me to move forward. I think the big, big, the big sidebar from that was that my jur- journalism experience was priceless with that, mm-hmm. because that's essentially what you are as a journalist, or at least you should be, is someone who spots the trends, who sure. smells something, and then follows it down the rabbit hole, even when other, other people are afraid to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it ended up being priceless with me becoming an entrepreneur, because one of the reasons I would argue that Cuddler took off was we saw something before other people did, and as soon as it came out, it went like wildfire, but that was because we saw it coming on the horizon versus waiting for other people to get into the pool. Yeah, you were really on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thanks. Let's let's talk about Cuddler. So the app, you, you sold it just last year, right? Yep. And w- when did it launch? When did you first kind of kick it out with some early versions? Sure. It actually launched uh, September 18th of uh, 2014. Right. So we're talking, we're talking less than one year between launch and sale. So there's not only do, we, do I want to talk about, do I want to talk about the, the app itself, what the conversations that started and whatnot, but I want to talk about app development and, uh, and the, how that process went for you, because that was fantastic. Um, so going back to the, the foundation of it, what, what kind of brought the idea to the fore and how did you, how did you center around, um, what ended up being Cuddler? Sure. Well, Here's the interesting thing. So if we went a year before that in, um, in 2000, um, 2013, um, around that time, I was playing around with an app idea called So Quotable. And the idea is that you're, you're having a conversation with someone, they say something interesting, and then you can share it, share that quote attributing them and it automatically gets your location. Mm. So a very simple idea, almost like a stripped down version of what you see on Twitter, yeah. except geared towards, towards quotes. Mm-hmm. Got a lot of support from it. I programmed it myself. So it was very old school. Um, it was quite a journey because I was working on the app again around the time that I became a, a dad. And then as I was working on the app, I ended up getting a call back from Ted and they wanted me to speak on their second stage. Mm-hmm. And so the app came out and then a week later, I was at TED. It was just oh, an insane wow. but wonderful year. Yeah. In that process, a lot of people kind of woke up and said, oh, okay, um, Damon's not just a journalist. And I had spent three years in, in Silicon Valley. My wife had a fellowship up at Stanford. So that moves, moved us up to Silicon Valley around the time that uh, Porn and Pong came out in 2008. And it ended up being really fortuitous. Number one, because I was coming out with this book, my first major book on sex and technology, and I was moving to San Francisco. So it's like that's, you know. The center it's of the like, universe. Like, yeah, it's like having a book on, on ramen and then moving to Tokyo. It's right. like you're, right. you're at the right, the right spot. So, so that was happening, but it also exposed me to a lot of great entrepreneurs. And there were some really good friends and a lot of colleagues that were like, hey, like you seem to understand apps and at the time i was writing for the new york post and other folks about app culture they're like you know do you have any app ideas and i was like no not really and then the quote thing came about from a conversation i was having with a friend and i was like yeah let me go for it that sounds good and i worked on it and it came out and my point is that sometimes people see you as a certain thing Mm -hmm. and that's okay that's their right to do that you might even contribute to that happening and that's okay but there's always or always should be some type of metamorphosis that's happening within you. So some type of thing under the surface that you should be working towards. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not really keen on being at the same place um, and not evolving, say, a year later. Like mm-hmm. that's, not, that's not, not really how I want to do my life or my career. And so for me, that evolution was always happening. When So Quotable came out, then it was kind of like, oh, okay not only proving other people that it's like, oh, okay, I, I'm, I'm an app developer and I can do other things, consulting and other things of that nature, um, but also proving to myself that I could create an app. Mm-hmm. So the short version of that is that as I came out with an app, uh, one of my best friends had reached out to me and said, hey, I have a colleague, his name is Charlie. He's, he's, he's originally from America, but he's over in the UK. And he's, he's, he's thinking about this idea about connecting people to for hugs, but strictly botanically. Mm-hmm. And he wants to get it out there, but his background's development, he's not exactly sure how to get it out there. 
And I was saying, maybe you guys can talk. He seems like cool people. And I was like, sure, I'll talk to him. And that was summer of 2014. We had a conversation. We hit it off. And I said, how about we work together um, and see what happens, see where it goes. So we started talking, working together, and it started evolving. And as I started to research the subject, I was like, all right, Charlie, I, I know we're talking about this being a small thing, but I think it's going to be a big thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe not huge, but a big thing. Mm-hmm. Because we realized, um, and particularly with my research, that there was this huge gap, this huge gray area between the people on Facebook who are people you already know. And so it's people you already connected with. You're not going to connect with strangers on Facebook. And then there's that side of it. So people you already know. And then there's a side of it with Tinder and Grindr and a lot of the, the popular so-called dating apps that are out now. And those are using your location to find strangers that you might find attractive and perhaps hooking up with them. But there's a huge space in there. What if you want to connect with people um, just on a platonic level? What if you really need a hug right now and no one's around? What if you have issues that, ha- that make intimacy challenging, but you'd rather connect with a stranger because of those particular issues in your life? There, are, there was like five or six scenarios that I came up with. And I was like, there's a huge hole here because a lot of people aren't being served. And so we started working on the app. He was doing a development. I helped out with some of the design of it and definitely with the, the formatting of it, the language and so forth, some more the, the culture and the context. And we ended up coming up with a short essay that we published ourselves uh, on medium.com. And then I did some outreach to some of the people that have been following me and who had supported me and my journey as far as exploring intimacy. And a couple of them were like, wow, it sounds fascinating. We'd love to, you know, to talk with you guys. And that's all we did. So mm-hmm. we did a, um, a short interview with Salon.com. And then we published the, the essay. And that's it, all we did for, for uh, coming out with it. Damon, what, we, has this, was this, sorry, I just want to put this on no, the timeline. Okay. Was this before or after there had already been some major media coverage of the whole platonic cuddling thing? Because I remember there was a big article, I want to say, in the New York Times about a woman in Seattle, maybe? Exactly. Um, yeah, that okay. was actually, this was actually before the coverage. Okay, yeah. this was before the coverage. Okay. Yeah, because the, um, the woman in Seattle, her name is uh, Samantha Hess. And so a brief sidebar on her, she went through a bad breakup and she was like, you know what? I really need someone to hug. And so she tried to find someone to hug. Of course, there were no services like that. And so what she started doing is saying, you know what? If I'm going through this, other people are. Um, How about I have people pay me, I believe it was $60 an hour and I will be a professional cuddler for them. Mm Mm-hmm. And so she came out with that in 2013, about a year before we did. Mm -hmm. And then she got some press for that. And it was very much an independent operation. So then that that was like something on the horizon that we were like, okay, well, maybe there is a way that we can make this a a more universal thing versus you paying someone and then it being a services thing because that that also brings up some other other issues. Mm -hmm. And so, so Hess said it came out about a year before, and then we launched on, again, September 18th with the, the feature on Salon.com and then our little post. And then by that evening, um, we were on the late night talk shows, and, and it was like, <laughs> seriously, it was, it was crazy. With that first week, we had, um, I, I believe it was uh, between 100 and 150,000 completed cuddles. Wow. Wow. And, uh, it was, it was insane. Like, I, I won't even get bore you with the stats, but it was, it was insane. And it went way further than, than, than either of us expected it to, to go. So, yeah, that's, that's the shortest version of the story I can give you. Yeah, but yeah that, was, that was pretty insane. Well, yeah. and what's, what's so fascinating about it is how the conversations that, the, just the cultural discussion that kind of that led to and, and people talking about the idea of, well, well that's weird. So I pay somebody to cuddle with me, you know, like yeah. in or... Um, wow, that's kind of cool. Like I'm yeah. lonely and I could right. just pay someone to cuddle with me and it doesn't have to be weird. Right. The, just all of the different in just the, the kitchen table conversations that sparked and whatnot was just fascinating. Now, now in the, in the development 
Uh, so the app took off. And you, right. Oh, and just to clarify, there yeah, was sure. no no money exchange. So right. it was strictly a, yeah. Yours you know, is peer to peer, right? Yeah. Peer, thank you. Yeah. Right. It's just strictly peer to peer. That yeah. was I only bring it up because that was a huge defer, differentiation, and and also it was a cultural decision. We were like, no, no money exchange. Right. You know, just strictly the this the the platonic moment of that. Sure. And you get you created the platform for that for people to connect peer to peer. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So. I, I imagine huge adoption early on. The numbers just kept growing. Um, you get into 2015 now, and I mean, what what sort of what sort of usage are we talking about here? What, and and I'm asking 400 questions at once here because there's so many so many aspects of this I want to uh, discover. Um, were you approached for acquisition, or did you seek out uh, and acquire as well? We we had a lot of discussions. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, sure. You know, just for the sake of right of uh, privacy, as they say in Britain. Yep. Um, <laughs> privacy. <laughs> I love saying privacy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we had a lot of discussions. Yeah, and um, uh, a lot of talks as far as with uh, funding, mm-hmm. uh, and we end up bootstrapping the whole time, which is is now kind of a point of pride. But right, you know, it was also a very rough way to go. Sure. Um, you know, so we end up bootstrapping the whole time. Um, yeah, there were a lot of discussions. Um, maybe one day when I write a memoir, all that will come out. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Now, not, not so much. Yeah, yeah. So lessons learned from it, though, in terms of yeah. the, the early growth. Uh, it seems like the press coverage, um, the PR, of course, the uniqueness of the story or the um, subject matter and whatnot. You feel like there's some lessons learned in that that are um, applicable that other people can, can learn from in terms of that approach? Yeah. Number one, um, control the message, mm. you know, and my, my PR friends would, you know, would of course say that that's PR 101, mm-hmm. but even, you know, we didn't have a PR firm, you know, it was mm-hmm. just, just me and Charlie and, uh, two or three other people that were helping behind the scenes, um, more on a part-time level or more as friends or colleagues, you know, but it, as far as leading the company, it was me and Charlie, mm-hmm. that was it. So we didn't, you know, we didn't have a PR firm. So the whole thing was to, to control the message, you know, and for me, since that was pretty much my steed, controlling the message meant making sure we defined ourselves before someone else defined us. And I'm used to dabbling in um, maybe taboo topics. I can't mm-hmm. think of a better term for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've written 15 books what, four of them have dealt with sexuality, mm-hmm. you know, and, and two of those put me on the road, you know, on book tour, you know, so I'm used to like, <laughs> I'm used to having some heated discussions or right. at least having other people get heated at me because some of the things that I address, but you know, that's, that's, that's my mission. Like that's my path. And so for me, that's why it was so eye opening to become an entrepreneur where I realized some of those lessons could be applied to entrepreneurship. You know, yeah, and so yes. it goes back to um, understanding and, and creating your own your own message, and so that's why we approached a few publications that we trusted a lot, or at least I trusted a lot, that I knew could handle the intimacy, intimacy subject of platonic cuddles without you know the snickering in the background, right. you know, without right, the, yeah, right, you know, without the schoolboy humor. Mm-hmm without the allusions to something else is really going on, but people who would actually respect our brand, our product. Um, number two, we came up with our own essay, you know, 1500 words or so that explained exactly what we were trying to do. So, I mean, our stuff got twisted up really tough in September and October. I mean, we got raked over the coals, as you can imagine, because it's such a, an odd thing. But we had two things on our side. The first thing is that we had the user adoption. Mm-hmm. I mean, hundreds of thousands of users. So it's like, you can't argue with that. How can right. you say, this is stupid, this app is crazy, we don't need this, mm-hmm. and you have like, you know, a few hundred thousand users that are using it while you're saying it, right? right? So, <laughs> so, I mean, that part of controlling the message, that was definitely in our favor. So always having a good product or something that, that hits at the right time, and then you'll have, you'll have the crowd on your side. Uh, but then the number two part of it, though, was that no matter how things rough, rough the edges got when we were dealing with press, 
um, and a lot of the press didn't even approach us. They just made judgments on their own, which was a tough thing as a journalist for me. Mm-hmm. But as people made judgments and all that, we, the, the blueprint for why we did it and what our intention was was right there. So it, was, so it wasn't a matter of saying, oh, we think the, the developers meant this and we meant it's like, no, like, mm-hmm. our, like it's right on our blog. It's all on our, our Twitter stream. People are sharing it. It's quoted in salon.com. It's like, so our intention was laid out from the beginning. And I think the more controversial or more intense your product or your service, then the more you need to make sure that you represent yourself. Because it's, it, there's this great adage that I just heard. I know I'm going to butcher it. But it says something to the effect of, if you don't write your own history, then someone else will. Mm-hmm. And it's very much in that vein where it's like, if we didn't say what we represented, if we didn't step out there and say, hey, this is what color represents, this, this is our background, this is what color represents, this is what we're trying to do. We want to move the needle on the cultural discussion on this gray area, you know, between, um, between traditional um, intercourse or intimacy and not knowing strangers. It's like there's a huge gray area in there. We want to explore that. We want to enable you and give, like you said, give you a platform to do so. If we didn't lay it on the line like that, then that rough time we had in the press for the, those first few weeks, I don't know how it would have turned out. Yeah. Well, and in this political season, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, lessons learned there that I think apply to both the political sphere and, and also the, the story of one's, one's business, especially with a business that is app-based, can go, the, the growth rate can be so rapid. There's so much that can seemingly get out of hand, so to speak, or out of control. Um, I think that's a that's a very brilliant insight into the the idea of controlling the message, but also to predate the message in a way, right? To to have it yeah. defined, to, the manifestos kind of laying out what is what is to be and what the intent is. Um, I think that's I think that's great. So between between color then and then your your relatively new book that's out, um, which uh, I absorbed over the over a weekend and I thought was fantastic. It's called Our Virtual Shadow why we're obsessed with documenting our lives online in um, that very interesting because it's another cultural discussion. You know, it's, it's almost cliche to, to watch people observing a, an event happening through their, the, the camera lens on their cell phones. <laughs> and uh, can you talk a little bit about the, the genesis of, of our virtual shadow, how that came about and, and sort of the larger, discussion because this is something that can help focus us too because i know i know there's kind of like a um you know a direction that this can lead us with technology and balancing that in our lives yeah thank you for the for the compliments i'm glad you you enjoyed the book and so it actually came about because i got involved with ted about a year or two before the book uh came about and at that time they were just starting their ted books line and so ted it's a the, um, the big conference, which is now in, in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And they have a series of speakers. It's actually going to be two weeks from now. So I'll be heading up to Vancouver for that. Um, and, and so two weeks, uh, a week-long uh, um, event with speakers and, and people who are trying to, to push along a certain message in the world. Um, so it's a great platform to be involved with. And so I started talking with them, started going to the conference. They were starting their book line, which makes perfect sense since they have they have some some strong speakers there. Mm-hmm. As that was happening, I was working on my my first app, so quotable, which at the time was called quote unquote. And I mentioned quote unquote a few times in the book. And as I was working on that, you know, the traditional journalism background, you know, getting nerdy, going to the virtual mm-hmm. library, if you want to call it that. So I'm doing all mm-hmm. this research, trying to understand, you know, the sociology of of how people document things. And I'm going in. Looking to the history of Twitter, going back to MySpace, looking at that history, even back to Friendster, even going back to uh, early social media like the BBS boards like two decades ago and so forth. Yeah. Well, going into all this research and um, I'm realizing that all the social media that we're using today, including the app that I was creating, required you to, to disconnect from your current reality. So if you're posting a picture on Instagram, you know, to be belabored about it, but I'll break down the step. You're having a, a wonderful moment with your family or with your friends. You want to capture that moment. 
that means you have to dig for your phone, get your phone, turn it on or click it on or whatever, go to that particular app that you're using, Instagram, line up the photo, tell everybody to freeze, take that picture, then do a wise or smart or whatever caption, make sure your hashtags are correct. Do filters if you want to do filters. Say, well, don't you forget make sure that filter. Good too. <laughs> I'm not a filter guy, but you know, I need a I filter. A lot of people... <laughs> right, of course. Right? But you only but... see me through a haze. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> a purple haze. Yeah. Um, and so, so you got that. I'm into locations. So you have to put the location there. Otherwise, if you don't have location, it doesn't give context. Mm-hmm. So you put your location in there, and then you do the upload. But then it takes a while to upload because you have to make sure that. You know, your 3G is correct or your Wi-Fi is on. I mean, after you do all that, and this might be all in our heads and we're doing it on the phone and we think, we're thinking it's fast. By the time we go through all that, it's, we're talking 30 seconds to five minutes. Mm-hmm. All right, so we're enjoying this moment with our friends or our family or whoever or by ourselves. Okay, so we're going to pull ourselves out of this perfect moment so we can capture this perfect moment. Yeah, And then we're assuming that we didn't leave the moment or mm-hmm. we're assuming we can get back into that moment. I, I think not. Like that's, that's a difficult place to be. Mm-hmm. And so I realized that all the social media that we currently use requires that, um, including, again, including my own app that I was creating. And so when I started talking with Ted about that, that's when we came about that with, uh, with doing the book. And it was something that I was thinking about anyway, but ended up being a really good platform for it. And they were able to, to magnify a little bit, and, and we had some really good discussions about it. And I think the big challenge with social media today is that it's so ingrained into our daily lives that we forget to ask why we need to be on social media or why we're posting something. I was talking to someone recently and I was saying, you know, the problem isn't posting on social media. The problem is when we have that urge to post on social media, we rarely ask why. Mm-hmm. Do we want to capture this moment uh, for ourselves? Do you want to capture this moment and show off to our, our friends what we're doing and that it's amazing? Do we want to include other people in this wonderful moment? Did we think that this moment would be forgotten and we wanted to capture it now? Like, there's an infinite number of questions, and there's different reasons why we do that. But just a simple urge to do social media, I think it's really important to ask why. And that's something we're not really asking that much nowadays. I know for myself, um, I did an ink column recently about me taking a week off of social media. And it was about as hard as you might think. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kept reaching for my phone, but I realized I deleted my Twitter and my Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I couldn't check. And I'm hanging out with my son, and I'm like, oh, let me see what's on Facebook. Oh, that's right. I blocked myself off of it. And all these different urges that I had. And it was number one, it was interesting having those urges and then not being able to use it, like literally not being able to use it. Mm-hmm. And then that forced me to question why I wanted to use it in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that was number one, a great exercise. Number two, and this is the truth, when I got back on the Facebook a week later, there were about 65, maybe 70 notifications. <laughs> and I was like, did someone die? What happened? Right? Mm-hmm. So I went on there and I, let's say if it was 65, I'd say 60 of those notifications was someone who tagged me on a meme about a cat <laughs> yeah. i swear and or a game invite yeah it was yeah it was like a hang in there poster or something right <laughs> and, and it was 60 comments about that yeah and i was like that's i was gone for a week and that's what i missed this is what i missed yeah that's so, i mean that that's that's a good lesson for me where i'm like oh okay well i would encourage everyone to do that even if it's just for a few hours just to yeah Go away and then just understand the reasoning. For me, it's not not just a subject of things, but why that? Like, why do why do we feel as though we need a hug right now? Mm-hmm. You know, why do we feel as though that that we can't talk about this particular thing? Why do we feel as though that we have to be on social media all the time? You know, if, I think if we answer those questions, we'll we'll find a little bit more inner peace. You know, and and connect to the reasons to do so and why people derive true value from technology because I know I know you're not a you're not somebody that's down on technology you love it just like I do just like Megan mm-hmm. does and there are incredibly valuable uses of technology both to help improve cu- human connection which you've talked a lot about 
but also to um, grow a business, to advance society, um, things along those lines. And I'd love at some point to talk a little bit about artificial intelligence and get your perspective on the current state of it and, and you know, how to, do we see us adopting a wider use? It seems inevitable. Um, but the question I'm curious to get your perspective on, Damon, is acclimating AI into our regular lives. Um, I know it's already happening in many ways that we're kind of loosely utilizing, but what's your perspective on the issue itself? I know there's some pretty high-profile people that have exhibited, uh, published some very strong opinions, pro and con. Um, sure. Elon Musk being one very interesting um, perspective. Um, but what's your opinion on it? I think it, it is inevitable. So first off, yeah, it, it's because it's already happening, as mm-hmm. you mentioned. Yeah. So so that's it's already rolling. Excuse me, the genie's out the bottle with that. But I think number two, I think it's really important for us not to not to think that AI will relieve any pressure from us being productive Mm. from the demands in our life or from us being human. Mm. And what I mean by that is it was a, a great, a great ad. I want to say from like 1973 or 74 that I'd stumbled upon. Unfortunately, after it was well after I would written our virtual shadow, but I I'd stumbled upon it and it was a major scientist, or maybe it was just uh, um, um, quoting some, some paper, uh, some scientific study. And it was arguing that as Moore's law took hold more, you know, as, as our processors got stronger, you know, as our computers got more intelligent, as our computers got smaller and more compact, then we'll have this ability by the 1980s or 1990s to spend more time with our family Hmm. we'll have this right we'll have this ability to have 20-hour work weeks similar to what Hmm. they do sometimes in europe Um, we'd have this ability to connect with other people more because ai um, i'm not even sure if they called it AI at the time but computers Mm -hmm. would be able to manage more of our lives for us and of course, I'm reading this, you know, in 2016. <laughs> like, yeah, right. You know, right, <laughs> right as, I'm, as I'm juggling my family, and I know, Megan, you're juggling yours, you know, and, and we're, we're working probably harder than we did before. In fact, I've talked to, to sociologists who say that we're working harder than our grandparents did, mm-hmm. even though our grandparents probably had less. Damon, this and is reminding me of, there was a, yeah. a paper that came out in the 20s I think and it was called more work for mother and it was about um, household technology and how everyone thought it was going to make a housewife's job, you know, so much easier that then now she'd have all this time for, I don't know, spending time with her kids or volunteering or whatever. And what they found was that everyone just wanted more clothes to clean instead of having two things, you know, because you had to, you know, use a washboard. Now you had a washing machine, so you could have a closet full of clothes. And instead of having a dinner that was made over, you know, this very simple meal now, was expected. So it's, it's the same thing a hundred years later, really. Wow. Just, fascinating. You know, yeah, it should, we should link to that in the show notes. Cause it's the same, it's the same concept really is that, um, we don't ever want to stop more getting more or cramming more in. Yeah. We'll find if, if there's space, we'll fill it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there's a programming adage that I was trying to remember, but it's similar to that where they, they, you know, it's, um, to get nerdy for a second. Like the original Pac-Man, you know, back from mm. the um, late 70s, early 80s, I believe it was 81. Donkey Kong, all the classic games, you know, Centipede and so forth. They were made with hardware that was smaller, that had less power than the average calculator today. Mm. But that's because that's what the programmers had to work with. So they made amazing stuff happen within this these mm-hmm. less powerful, tiny computers, tiny as far as memory. But then we have these amazing machines. We have these phones in our pockets that are stronger than any computer that I grew up with. 
And yet, as an app developer and as other people have found, we're running out of space in our phones. <laughs> so, it, I mean, I think it very much is human nature. So, yeah. you know, to, to go to, to what Mega was saying, I, I, I agree 100% where I think AI, I think AI is going to be fine. And I think it will be a slower integration into our lives than we think. I don't think it's going to be, a, you know, um, <laughs> Skynet has gotten sentience. You know, yeah, and suddenly, right. And suddenly it's 2020 and, you know, and, and, you know, and the computers are taking over like maximum overdrive or something. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be that deep. And we're having but to figure out how to use muskets again <laughs> exactly, to right. defend ourselves. <laughs> exactly. Right. And bayonets. Yeah. You know, but, but that kind of thing, I don't think it's going to be that dramatic. Because if, if it was that dramatic, it probably would have happened a little while ago. Mm-hmm. You know, computers are controlling a lot of our lives now. So I'm a little bit skeptical that it's going to be this black and white situation where suddenly computers are going to take over. Right. I think it's going to be a lot slower. Um, but I also don't buy that AI is going to make our lives easier. Right. I really don't. Because if it's anything from studying humanity, we'll find a way to make it harder. Again. Right. And we will, we, we, will, we will add more stuff to it. And... You know, if our plates aren't full, we'll find things to we'll fill up with. That's, <laughs> we'll, yeah. we, we'll raise the bar. We'll raise the bar. Yeah. Particularly as Americans, I would argue. But yeah, yeah we'll no, definitely totally. raise the bar. Yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think the subtitle to America, the book, is more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, my. So, so with, with that, I mean, the, the idea of acclimating future technology into our lives... You've, you've studied humanity, you've studied technology and the intersection thereof. You've, you've got a pretty good handle, better than a lot of people, anybody that I can think of, as to the whiz, what advice from a wisdom standpoint would you have for people on how to best utilize technology to A, make their lives better, but, and maybe technology doesn't do this per se, but how to control one's own impulses to the point where, like you were saying, being able to take a week off from social media. I, I start every year, the first 21 days of every year, I take completely off of Facebook. And nice. I come back day 22 and similar similar perspective to yours, log in, realized I've missed absolutely nothing <laughs> and and just feel like, you know what? I, I actually had more time to myself. So I actually made it a goal for 2016 personally. I know I've, I've talked to Megan about this, to be bored more often. And what I mean by that is to actually have those moments when I would habitually or reactionally reach for my phone. Of course, that's usually where we go to do, you know, X, Y, or Z, Facebook, Twitter, um, Flipboard, whatever it is, and and to try and leave that space. But it's so hard to overcome the human nature side of it. You know, there's that behaviorally. We've just we've gotten the little dopamine fix we get every time I see that little you know, red one pop up on the Facebook notifications, you know, the it's, it's all still there. So, you know, from your perspective, what, what is the best ways, uh, what is the best way that we can incorporate technology into our lives and make sure that we're better for it? Wow. Yeah. That's that. I think that's kind of the statement of, of right now, it should be on all of our agendas. I think number one is to allow yourself to miss things. It's, there's a popular, uh, um, saying now, which you guys have probably heard of, it's called FOMO, mm-hmm. right? So the fear of missing out. And that's a huge thing now. We're afraid we're going to miss something. <clears throat> I think it, that's just kind of the way that we're trained. And I don't even mean from a social media standpoint, I mean from a human standpoint. So um, again, my background is journalism. I was taught by people who were, you know, the old dogs in the newspaper room. And if you think about classic newspaper history and the way it rolls for our parents' generation and definitely before that, then you get a, a small piece of paper once in the morning. You got it. You, read your, you drank your coffee. You read what you needed to read. And you could spend the whole morning with it if it was Sunday. And that's how you absorb your information. Maybe there's 100 stories in there. If you're from a small town, maybe it's 25. And that was it. And then you go to the general store, you talk to whoever, and that's how you do it. Now, <laughs> those 25 stories, those 100 stories, mm-hmm. you can get those in like 10 seconds. Just go online. And so it's like we haven't quite shifted to this mentality of understanding that there's going to be a certain piece of information we're going to miss because we're still of that mentality that we need to absorb everything. And that's not possible. 
It's the whole journalism idea of the fire hose. It's a fire hose of information. Well, what happens if you keep on putting a fire hose into, into a limited space? Mm-hmm. It's going to get overwhelmed. And so it makes more sense to say, you know what? There's going to be certain things I'm going to miss, and that's okay. I know major entrepreneurs within Silicon Valley, and I mentioned just the major part because they actually will not check email till around 11 a.m. in the morning. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard that from them, I was like, that is, how do you do that? You know, and they're yeah. like, well, I use the morning to get things done. And it's like, oh, okay. So not only the ability, like you mentioned, to be bored, which I think is so key, because that's when you come up with interesting ideas and re- you're really able to sit with yourself, but also the idea of being more, uh, more present when you are working. And that sometimes requires getting away from the social media and not getting on at all. So I'd say, number one, being okay with the FOMO aspect. And I think that's where the dopamine comes in, where we're like, Mm -hmm. we want to have that trigger. We want to know what's going on. We want to move forward with that. I think number two is the idea of not feeling like you have to be on all the time and actually pushing or delaying it. And that's okay, too. I think the number three aspect of it is figuring out, like I mentioned, what why exactly you want to be on a particular social media thing at that particular time. So why do you want to do that upload? Why are you pausing this moment in your life to check your feed? Maybe there's something that it's um, filling a gap for. Maybe there's something that's on your mind that you don't really want to deal with. And until we actually pause, good or ill, we won't really know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, which kind of brings us around to the point right we're we're what are we doing here yeah. <laughs> the, the that, that whole question uh, i'm reminded What's of the, the point of it all i'm, I'm reminded What's of the, the movie office space uh, where the consultants are sitting in the room and and everybody's asking the question so what do you do what would you here? say you do here yeah, yeah. so the, the i always like to ask the point right so the point is wh- what are we doing with you know how are we defining for ourselves what our lives are going to be about. And I know you, you wrote a great column for Inc. Uh, Sane Success. Um, and I know it's important to you, and this is another reason why I think you're a perfect guest for this podcast, the idea of having a strong professional life where you're exploring things you're passionate about, you're making a difference in the world, and you're, you're feeding that side of your soul that, that wants to achieve and be productive and useful. And at the same time, balancing that with the rest of what our lives are actually about, which is our, our families, the people around us, uh, greater purpose, things like that. Um, you know, that's, that's something that is a, it's very important to me. It's something I'm learning a lot more. Um, the, the busier I've gotten and the more things that I've, I've taken on, I'm realizing, um, probably, uh, you know, I'd say maybe a year or two before some form of major event, (laughs) some major mental event occurring, um, that that's really important. But for you, I mean, I, that's something that is is sort of the forefront of, of what you write about in Sane Success in relation to business and for entrepreneurs, right? Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's the understanding that if everything is a priority, then nothing's a priority. And that's something that I keep in mind um, as much as possible, ideally every day. The idea that you going to a particular conference or you meeting a particular deadline, um, you having a particular connection with your partner, you spending a particular amount of time with your kids, you having this moment to yourself. It's a matter of shuffling those priorities as they come up and not saying, this has to go to the wayside. It's been amazing to me, particularly with the time I spent in Silicon Valley, it was amazing to me how many people felt as though that the only way to quote-unquote win, the only way to quote-unquote crush it, was to sacrifice every other thing in their lives. Mm. Like, they felt like there was no choice. Um, The fortunate side is that a lot of people that I I bumped into that had the mentality, they were like 23. Yeah. You know, so yeah. that's I cool. That. Like, you know, I'm yeah. sure I had a different attitude too at 23, and that's cool. So they have time to figure out that 
the sacrifices that they make, they have a much larger impact than getting an app out into the world. Mm. Um, that's one of the fortunate things that I have is that I'm going to be turning 40 this year. And so with So Quotable and then with Cuddler, like it was crazy because um, Cuddler hit the number one on the app store, on the Apple app store on my 39th birthday, mm. you know, so last, last September or the September, before, actually it's the 38th. So September before last. And I was thinking about how many entrepreneurs might've benefited from having that late of a success relative to the Zuckerbergs and, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, um, the other guys that are out there that have notable names, because ideally you're at a point where you realize exactly what's important and where your priorities should be. So it wasn't a matter of saying, oh, I have the number one app in the, in the country. It might've been in the world, but I think it was in the U.S. only. I have number one app in the U.S. Let me not spend time with my family right now. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, so I think it's a matter of having that level-headedness. Um, I was fortunate in that it happened to me later. If it happened to me when it was really early, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That's the honest Harder to get response. off that train, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, once you're on it, yeah. yeah. Yeah, who knows what train I would have been on. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, to, to be blunt about it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a matter of having that level-headedness. And um, I'm not going to say I earned it, but it, did, it was something that came with age. You know, and I'm thankful for that. Um, I think for a lot of entrepreneurs, even those that are around my age, it's like they, you know, they put the, the, the app, they put the cover of the Wall Street Journal and other stuff, they put that above these other things. The thing is, is that, as you mentioned, Cuddler lasted for less than a year. So we launched, we had a fabulous time. You know, we sold it um, 11 months later mm. and now it's done. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things I try to, try to say with the column is that that amazing experience, even with having the number one app in the country, we did it twice doing it twice and all that, all that is gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You realize it's a blip. The older you get, the, the blippier. Yeah. You, <laughs> it was less than a the year. The blippier like, right, it exactly. gets. Yeah. Right. It's, all, it's all relative, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After four years, it's like, oh, okay, that was less than a year of my life. That right. was nothing. Yeah. yeah. Incredible experience. I wouldn't trade it, but it's one of those things that really, now I have a level of perspective that even at the time I didn't have. Because mm. now I'm like, oh, that's, that's the past now. And that was only 11 months of my life mm -hmm. and that's it. And so imagine if I sacrificed all these other things just to have those 11 months. Mm. So, I mean, when you talk about it like that, at least to me, it sounds ridiculous. Right. Yeah. It's like, of course you don't do that. But I think when we're in the heat of that and, you know, we have people saying, oh, your app is great. We have people saying, oh, your app is horrible. Whatever your app, your brand, your service, your product, whatever it's like it's easy to allow that to go to your head or for that to change your priorities. And one of the things I'm trying to do with Incolum is say, not only should you not let it change your priorities, but you don't have to. Mm -hmm. And I think the people that we look up to, you know, um, Ellison, Jobs, um, Gates, those guys, they have like a, 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 a you know, a, a whole stack of bodies in their wake yeah, yeah. like and they were vicious vicious and they know it too yeah. you know and that's what they did to get to where they got and that's cool that's their ethics it's their their priority and i respect them for where they're at right now and what they did and rest in peace and all that but the thing is, is that if we're looking up to those particular people particularly if we're younger and we're looking up to those particular people then what kind of standard is that setting and people like myself people um, like the Sheryl Sandbergs and other folks, like we shouldn't exist based on that, on that premise. And so that's one of the reasons why, I've, as you can tell, I'm really passionate about it with the column and saying, hey, it doesn't have to be it's either or situation. It doesn't have to be you disregarding your family or you neglecting your health and staying up for, for 94 hours. Like that's not, there's ways that you can do it, but you don't have to you don't have to go to that extreme. And there's smart ways that you can be efficient and stronger and still actually have a life once you decide you're moving on to the next thing. Which is okay. fantastic. Yeah, I highly encourage people to check out the check out the column 
Um, Inc.com slash Damon dash Brown will get you there. Um, we'll link to it in the show notes. We'll link well. to it in the show notes. Um, you put up a great, great post last week about why you should follow your passion right now. <laughs> the idea that you have <laughs> less time than you think. And uh, we've, we've actually, um, it's, it's interesting. I'm going to, I'm going to pick on Megan here. You, you mentioned off the air that we had a conversation with someone that will remain nameless that we're trying to get on the show who would be a notable name. Um, who said, you know, I don't think I'm a good person to have on your show because I absolutely have no balance in my life. And I don't ever see my kids. And I don't ever see my kids. <laughs> so it's like, oh, oh okay. which Which is very interesting. I mean... It, <laughs> most but, people won't admit that, though. Well, I had to yeah. hand it to him for that. But. And I don't think most people would would go into their, their pursuit of their professional life thinking this right. is where I want to be. I right. want to be this unbalanced. I want to... But, but something takes over and we realize, like, our perspective gets out of whack. And... I, I certainly think that there are some wake-up calls that happen in many people's lives that sometimes will focus that perspective. Somebody close to them passes on or major health scare or things along or a mental breakdown or things along those lines. But um, I, what I love about what I love about your approach, Damon, is you're saying we can have balanced lives and build incredible things at the same time. And um, that that's something that I think we could all take to heart and uh i would love to to hear more from you about about that what what are the things that are on your mind right now that you're kind of studying and thinking about sure there's a always a lot of things so yeah. i'll try to keep it brief there's 400 right. browser tabs open like like all of those <laughs> actually I'm, I'm i'm very slim when it comes to browser tabs, oh, that's but i do always have something on my mind yeah um and so um there's there's two things that i'm that i'm thinking about a lot lately uh the number one thing is focus so the idea of us creating something, us creating something new or strong without, um, without being distracted by other things and actually having a sense of purpose and strength uh, without having to multitask. And multitasking, as I talked about uh, in the book, is, this, is kind of this thing that we're all doing and we feel as though we're being more efficient. But in reality, we're not. Mm -hmm. And so thinking a lot about focus and how I can have more focus in my life. Um, one of the TED Talks that I did a couple of years ago was about, um, it was called Big Things on Little Pieces of Paper or Big Ideas on Little Pieces of Paper. And, and what I talked about was my obsession with index cards. Mm. And I love index cards. I love writing down ideas. I love um, organizing my day on them. But the thing with index cards is that they're only so big. And so you can only focus on so many things. And I have big handwriting. So you can only focus on so many things. And so it really put my day into perspective in using index cards. So thinking a lot about how we focus on things and how we can be more productive. Um, another thing that I'm really thinking about a lot, too, is how our language is changing. And even though I've... I'm still doing journalism. I've, I've gone into to different directions, but I'm still kind of a linguist at heart. And I'm fascinated in how uh, emojis and how uh, GIFs, you know, the animated little images that are mm -hmm. popping up on Twitter a lot, mm -hmm. how those different types of things are changing how we connect with each other. So I have good friends, most of them younger, who will respond to my text in like GIFs. Oh, they respond to my text and emojis. And whatever they're sending to me is way more articulate than on a thousand word essay they can send back to me. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the idea of depth, you know, back to the old adage, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. I don't know how many words an emoji's worth, but it's a lot. And so it's interesting to see this cultural trend. My first major um, international trip was um, me taking myself to Tokyo for my birthday. And it absolutely blew my mind. I would not necessarily recommend Tokyo be your first stop <laughs> on an international trip. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like really intense to get off the plane and then it's electronic central. Yeah, um, culture but, shock, yeah. <laughs> right, very much like Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, but, but I ended up going there and seeing all those trends you know, back in the 90s, they were using, uh, or back in the early 2000s, they were using emojis then. And so it's so mm -hmm. interesting to go full circle mm -hmm. and see 
my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed and my Instagram feed and my, uh, my SMS, my text messaging on my phone, all of them being riddled with emojis when that was a big deal in Japan you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so I'm, I'm kind of fascinated with that idea as well. And so I'm, I'm exploring different ways that I can, that I can go deeper in, in those areas because I think it really is going to affect how we communicate with each other. Even if we look at something um, on the startup side, we look at a, a communication service like Slack. And mm-hmm. Slack has become a big deal, and that's being used with different startups all around the world and even major companies like Microsoft. And the ability to have this, this business software, this chat software that allows you to send GIFs and emojis and communicate with your team quickly. Suddenly, emojis are, are impacting how we're doing business now, too. Mm. So I've, it's, it's a fascinating subject for me. So you know, the idea of focus and the idea of emojis and, and GIFs becoming part of our cultural lexicon, like both those things are fascinating to me. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. Now, uh, so if people want to connect with you, Damon, um, what are the best ways in which to find you? I know you're, you're at Brown Damon at, on Twitter. And um, what other ways would you like people to, to track you down? Sure. Um, I have an official author page on uh, Facebook. So just look for Damon Brown and it'll say author right there. Author, I think, actually, I think it just switched to entrepreneur. So as you know, I'm going through, there you go. through my, my transition, right? That's Even right. my own transition. <laughs> um, and so Damon Brown Entrepreneur is on there. Um, and then you can go to damonbrown.net and that's my website. I just made a new one, so it's nice and spiffy. And um, it has most of my recent talks on there. Um, I recently did the, the keynote for the... Um, for the West Coast Conference of the American Society of Journalists and Authors, along with the uh, uh, Society of Professional Journalists. So we had a joint conference in November. I did the keynote there called uh, You Are Not a Journalist Anymore. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Which, I bet uh, that went over. Oh, <laughs> like it, a ton of breaks with some. <laughs> yeah, like butter. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so that's actually available online. And there was definitely a... Uh, a response to it, and that's yeah. what I wanted. Good, um, but the, the part of that discussion of of me not being the only journalist, me not being the only creator, that's moving forward and and making more content and making more insight and making more making um, an impact beyond just traditional newspapers or magazines. Um, and so it's it's a really fun time to to be involved in media and to be able to take those ideas and those lessons I learned from media and apply them to different different parts of the world. And so um, Brown Damon for Twitter, you can find me on Facebook. Um, I'm actually on Instagram, but you'll mostly see occasional travel pictures and lots of food. Mm-hmm. All right. So, <laughs> but it will usually be a quick food picture because I'm not into not eating my food and framing the picture right before I take, before right. I uh, eat. Um, and I think those would be the main areas. Okay. And um, I have some potential books in the works, so you'll hear from me soon. Well, yeah. We'd love to have you back on as they come out and to explore those topics and, yeah. and also just exploring technology and how entrepreneurs can utilize it uh, to stay sane in yes. this world. Yeah, love that. Thanks so Thank much, you. Damon. We'll link to all those, um, all those accounts in, in the show notes as well so people will be able to find you easily. It's been a pleasure. Beautiful. Thanks for having me. Thanks you so bet. much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks for listening to the Life Work Podcast. Build your business and design your life with us every day, Monday through Friday. And find us at lifeworkpodcast.com.